Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you would, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be continuing in our series, Conflicting Kingdoms, looking at the life of Jesus, his last week in Jerusalem, as he goes towards the cross and ultimately his resurrection. If you don't have a Bible with you at home, I would welcome you. Send us an email to office at tricitychurch.ca and we'd love to get one into your hands. If you know uh, the series The Crown, it's a show on Netflix that follows the British royal family. Uh, the, the changes that they've had to make, the, the adaptations that the family has gone through to survive throughout the years as things have changed, as events have unfolded, as scandal has rocked the family. Ultimately, they've, they've changed who they are and, and how they've worked because they wanted to stay in power in their positions. A major shift, though, happened during World War I when the royal family realized the growing anti-German sentiment in the British people. Obviously, uh, this was exacerbated by the fact that uh, King George was cousins with Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. And so, in June 19, 1917, uh, King George made the decision to change everybody's titles from anything that had a, a German foundation and even their, their last names. He himself changed his name from Saxa Coburg Gotha to the now recognizable Windsor. But that name change actually wasn't the biggest thing that they had to go through in that year. There was another decision that King George had to make concerning one of his cousins. Tsar Nicholas of Russia was in trouble following uh, the Russian Revolution and was looking for a place to go and live. He was looking for asylum, ultimately, in Britain. Well, King George was worried that if he allowed this cousin to come in and live with the family, it would upset the British people and ultimately his position and his power, his rule. So Nicholas, his wife Alexandra, and their children were ultimately arrested and later murdered. But the English monarchy survived. They survived by changing, by adapting, by being cutthroat, even towards their family, refusing them asylum. This morning, though, as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 26, our attention to the story of Easter that is unfolding before us, we're going to look at the religious authorities, look at Judas, we're going to look at Jesus and see how they respond to the changes happening around them. Where will they go? What will they do? Where will their allegiances lie and how will they respond to everything going on? And it's a decision, ultimately, that you and I have to make as well. Read with me, uh, Matthew 26, 1 to 5 and 14 to 16. This is what it says. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people in the uh, met in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, before we get into our text and really start looking at what's happening, uh, let's set the stage of what's been going on the last three days. So this text is happening on the Wednesday. 
but Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on the Sunday, three days prior. And, and even prior to that, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And there is a crowd that is surrounding Jesus who want to know and, and see him and be with him. And so as he enters Jerusalem on the Sunday, we see that people are worshiping him and celebrating him and calling him king. And the Pharisees don't really love what's going on and they come to Jesus and ask him, like, you need to stop this. You need to shut it down. The conflict started on Sunday, but Monday it, it intensified because Jesus enters their home turf. He goes into the temple and he flips over the tables of the money changers and he, and he drives out the people who are selling animals, trying to reform their worship. And then yesterday, Tuesday, he, he goes toe-to-toe, head-to-head with the Pharisees and the scribes, calling them hypocrites through these seven woes. Calls them whitewashed tombs. <laughs> All these things that, that cause them to be in direct conflict. But he doesn't end there. In that same day, he teaches about the end of an age, the coming of the Son of Man to judge the world, this new kingdom that's going to be set up. And ultimately, he even calls out the, the religious leaders and says, I this temple is going to be destroyed as well. The growing tension that's happening in Jerusalem would have been felt all over the place because Jesus is making sure of it. He's, he's adding fuel to the fire that's already there. He's making sure that the two kingdoms, his and the kingdom of this world, are colliding, are coming into direct conflict and everybody in the town is being caught up into it. Whether it's the chief priests and the authorities, whether it's the disciples or the crowds, it's drawing in every single heart. So let's start in verse 3 and look at the chief priests and see what's going on with them, what's happening in their hearts. And ultimately what we see in this passage is that the religious leaders are filled with fear. They're full of fear. Read verses 3 and 5, 3 to 5 with me again and see what they're afraid of and what actions they take in their fear. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar amongst the people. So what are the religious leaders afraid of? Why are they filled with fear? Well, ultimately, they're afraid of losing their positions of power. And this is a callback uh, to John chapter eleven forty eight, And this is what it says. If we let him, this is talking about Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We've set this up other weeks, but it's good to, to go over again. Uh, ultimately, they are terrified of intervention from Rome. The chief priests, the elders of the people, the Sanhedrin, are supposed to be keeping the worship, the people, in control. Away from rioting or trying to have an uprising against the Roman rule. See, if the Sanhedrin couldn't do this, Rome would. And during the Passover, there's already extra soldiers, extra garrisons in place to make sure that nothing happens. They're terrified of intervention from Rome. Because if Rome does come in, what could it mean? It could mean that they could, like it says in John 11, take away our place and our nation, take away our access to the temple, maybe even destroy it, maybe destroy the nation as a whole. That's something to be afraid of. But even if Rome didn't come and destroy everything, even if Rome uh, didn't come in and destroy the temple, it did mean that the position of the high priest was in jeopardy. See, historically, the high priestly role was one that was passed down from generation to generation. That was God's plan originally. But 
Many of us might not know that during the Roman occupation, that no longer was happening. The high priestly role was now a position that was either appointed or purchased. And and in that position, it afforded the person who had that role a great deal of of power and authority, of, of wealth even. You could purchase it. And so as long as you kept the people subservient to Rome, you could have that position of power. And so what we know for a fact is that Caiaphas was not the high priest by way of birthright or law. He'd either purchased it or had been appointed that role. And I think it changes the way we look at his leadership, the way we we look at his motivations. The whole pushback to the kingship of God, the, the, the kingdom of God breaking in, was that it would disrupt the kingdom of Rome. And ultimately, the lifestyle that so many had become accustomed to. They couldn't let this happen because it would mean that their own power, their own positions, and possibly their own lives would be at stake. See, they're afraid of losing their position and that fear, it leads them to seek help from the world. These men who are supposed to be examples of of godliness, of morality, they quickly descend into immorality, deceitful behaviors when they see their kingdoms under attack. Their fear drives them to do something that, that we wouldn't expect of them. When we would think that people who are religious are under attack, what would we think that they would do? Where would we think they would go for help? Well, they would turn to God, right? But that's not what they do. Instead, they align themselves with the the powers of the world and they resort to underhanded methods and of working in the shadows so the people can't see what they're doing. Look at verse three again. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. There's one group of people that's missing in this meeting. They don't bring in the religious scholars. The Sanhedrin was made up of three groups of people, the chief priests, the scholars, and the elders of the people. It's the scholars who would have been brought in if these people had had charges against Jesus according to the law of Moses, according to scripture. But they don't have that. This isn't about doing things God's way. It's not about trusting in God. It's not about seeking his will or his plan. They instead determined to take care of it themselves with brute force, with their own strength, their own powers, to help them in their plot against Jesus. Instead of turning to the more spiritual leaders, the, the chief priests, they turn to the elders of the people, the political powers. And I think it shows that this isn't about protecting the faith, it's about protecting themselves. So let me ask you, when you're feeling attacked, when, when you're feeling like things uh, are coming against you, where do you go for help? Do you look to worldly advice and wisdom? Do you run to your friends or family? Or do you seek God? How, what does your prayer life look like when you're in trouble, when you're confused, when you're scared? Even in the season of of COVID, have you scoured the news for all of the information you can, hoping to keep yourself safe or secure? Have you looked at article after article to know the spread and the effects, thinking that it can keep you safe if you just know enough? Have you hoarded food and supplies? Have you worried about your financial situation and looked to see how you can salvage what's going on in the stock markets? Just hoping that you can fix this. Hoping that you can take control. Are you trying to control the situation yourself? Or are you trusting in God? 
Have you been praying? Have you trusted that God is actually good and in control? Have you looked to God for help? We'll see that the chief priest chose to seek help from the worldly political powers. But where will you look? Where will I look? Where will we trust today? Now their fear led them to seek help from the world and ultimately it led them to devise some pretty evil plans. Look again at verse four. They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill them. Their fear is so great that they compromise the very morals, that the very things they claim to teach and uphold and protect, they are willing to play dirty. They're willing to be underhanded, to break the very laws of God. And that's what they do. They plot. They try to arrest Jesus by stealth. And they ultimately want to kill him. These words that Matthew uses, they underscore how ridiculous the plan is. They, they underscore how much of a contrast there is between Jesus and these religious leaders. Plotting is, is a word that means to a, make a plan in secret by a group of people to do something illegal or harmful. Stealth speaks of being deceitful or cunning, underhanded, and treacherous. And killing is plain old killing. But when you think that they're planning on killing and arresting an innocent man through deceitful practices, a man who's done nothing wrong, who has healed and fed and taught, you can see how depraved the chief priests have become. Ultimately, the plan that we see is that they, they ally themselves with all of that points to their motivation. The plan of the people they ally with themselves with reveals their motivation protecting themselves. They are ultimately not afraid of Jesus and his message alone, but about who hears it and how those people will respond. And that's what verse five says. Not during the feast, they said, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now during the, the Passover, the city of Jerusalem could swell to over two million people. Two million people who are hearing the stories of Jesus, who are hearing the whispers in the streets, who are hearing about Jesus coming in uh, and being hailed as, as king, cleaning out the temple, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious authorities, speaking of the end of an age and maybe the end of Rome, a new king to come. Think of all these people who wish to be out from under the hand of Rome who wish to be their own people, their own country, their own leaders again. Think of all the people who wanted God to fulfill his plans and promises and prophecies. If a riot happened, it would quickly be out of control. And the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, could do nothing to stop it. It would mean, it could mean the end for them. See, the religious leaders are terrified of the Romans and the crowds and of Jesus and his teaching because the combination of them means they could lose everything they had worked for. Fear is a, a powerful motivator that caused the chief priest to control their situation by seeking to kill an innocent man through cunning and illegal practices. What, what do you fear losing most in your life? What, what brings you the most joy that if it, if it was gone would, would bring you the most fear, would upset your life the most? And what has that fear caused you and I to do? Have you and I relied on sin and its practices like lying and stealing and cheating, like lusting and turning our back on God to protect ourselves, 
to keep ourselves safe? Do we believe the lie that, that we can take care of ourselves if we just sin a little, if, if, we, just, if we just do these few things to help ourselves? Well, I would welcome you and I to see God the way pastor and author Tim Chester does. When he writes that God is great or that God is sovereign, he's in control and that we don't have to be. That we can trust God with our job, with our money, with our family, our relationships, with all of our life, every aspect of it. The Pharisees had a plan. The plan needed help. They knew that they needed Jesus away from the crowds, but how could they succeed at that? Well, enter Judas, a man who sees the end in sight. And as we read uh, verses 14 to 16, we're going to see that Judas trusts in worthless things. Read those passages with me. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Think of all that's going on from, from Judas's perspective. When, when Judas goes to the chief priest and says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? This is after verse two. This is after Jesus says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up. He knows that this is after verse 12, where Jesus has been anointed by this woman. And he says that this woman has prepared his body for burial. I mean, by the time we get to verse 14, uh, Jesus has actually predicted his death many times already. Judas must finally be really uh, understanding and realizing that this is the end. This is the, the end of, of Jesus and, and this ministry and everything that's going on. So Judas is willing to help the chief priests and the elders of the people. But there's a different motivation, I think, for, for Judas. See, the chief priests wanted self-preservation, but Judas kind of wants a, a severance package, a, a job to go to, some kind of security for the next day. See, Jesus uh, is kind of Judas's piggy bank, and his days of stealing from that are coming to an end. This is what John 12, 4-6 says. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Jesus is, is the golden goose that's about to stop laying eggs. Right? There, there, there's nothing else for, for Judas to get out of him long term. And so he might as well get one last meal. Without Jesus, there's no money bag. Without money bag... There's no reason to stick around. He sees that his future is uncertain. Where will he go? Who's going to pay for his food and his lodging? But clearly, Judas hasn't really thought through very clearly what Jesus is worth. It's always a challenge to see what something is worth. Story of Ronald Wayne is, is one that starts with him being the, an, an owner, a co-owner with two others of a company. And they took out a substantial line of credit in the 1970s, uh, $15,000 US, to start their business. And it didn't take long for Ronald to get cold feet. Uh, it was actually only uh, 12 days. See, he was worried about the fact that if the company didn't survive, if it folded, he was the only one who had assets for the bank to come after. And Ronald was already uh, risk-averse in business because five years prior, 
Well, he had already had a business, a slot machine company, go belly up, and he had spent a year repaying all of its debts. So like I said, 12 days after uh, they signed the papers to form the company, he went in to the registrar's office and renounced his role in the company, relinquishing his equity in exchange for $800. That was April 12, 1976. Now at the time, uh, it, it seemed like a, a fair trade. The company wasn't going anywhere fast, and the payout seemed like a smart move. He had no more, uh, uh, he, he wasn't on the hook uh, if the company went under. He sealed the deal a year later by accepting a final $1,500 to forfeit any potential future claims against the newly legally incorporated company, walking away with a total of $2,300, which I'm sure seemed like a pretty great deal at the time. Ronald was probably pretty happy with it. Here's the thing. If, if he would have held on to that stock for another 40 years, he would have owned 10% of a trillion-dollar company he would have had $100 billion worth of stock because Ronald Wayne was one of the original three who created Apple computers. It's always a challenge to see something's true value. And what we see with Judas is that he agrees to betray Jesus and deliver him up for 30 pieces of silver, an amount that's worth about a month to maybe four months' wages at the time. Judas even in light of Ronald Wayne, I think is the worst investor in the history of the planet because he takes the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the, the living water that wells up to eternal life, and he trades that for enough to buy a burial plot. See, Judas, who had been blessed to see the miracles, the, the teachings, to have seen everything that was happening, the blessings of God year on and year off, he trades Jesus for practically nothing. It's like he was blessed to live in a bakery and eat everything that he had ever wanted, as much as he wanted, whenever he wanted it, but he went and he sold that bakery for crumbs. The truth is, when our minds and our hearts are corrupted by sin, it's hard for us to, to gauge any of the value of things accurately. Like Romans 1 says, because of sin, we exchange the, the glory of the immortal God for images of lesser things. We, we trade the, the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature. How could we have any objective measure for value when sin clouds our judgment? If you know Jesus today, are there areas of your life where you have traded him in for a lesser return? Have you found yourself unsatisfied in your singleness. You expected that God was going to bring someone into your life. Or maybe your marriage has not been turning out the way you thought it would. You're not satisfied. You're not happy with how it's going. And so in your singleness or in your marriage, you have, you've turned to pornography or even to relationships outside of that to try and fulfill that need, to find instant satisfaction. Man, you may know it's not right, but the payoff right now just seems better. Maybe you haven't seen Jesus supply you financially in the way that you expected. So you've stopped tithing or you've taken to, to fudge some numbers on your taxes or how you pay bills so that you can supply yourself. Maybe Christianity hasn't given you the, the happiness that you expected. And so you've started filling up your life with endless TV and movies, with media, with with food and drink. Believing that fulfillment right now is better than waiting on the promises of God. 
waiting to see what God is really up to. See, Judas betrayed the eternal for the temporary. He traded the overflowing for the just enough for today. What are you and I banking on for a good return? Will we only trust God if we see the overflowing right now? If we only see everything going our way right now? Or will we trust in the eternal plans of God? See, Judas missed the plan of God. He didn't see it. But what Judas missed, Jesus understood perfectly. And this is what we'll see in verses 1 and 2, that Jesus surrenders to the plan of God. This is what verse 1 and 2 says. When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. See, Jesus' attitude of surrender is seen in two ways in this passage. The first one is in verse 1 where Jesus says, uh, I finished all of these sayings. See, Jesus used that phrase repeatedly and Matthew used that phrase to talk about wrapping something up, the closing of a chapter, a moving from one place to another, a change. Closing this specific chapter that Jesus is talking about is a movement away from the the many to the few, from the the crowds to the 12 disciples. His teaching ministry is fulfilled and we'll see a lack of crowds around Jesus from this day forward before there is crowds but not supporting him. He removes himself from the safety of the crowds and now commits himself to the disciples before going to the cross See, Jesus is, is really experiencing a, a worldly safety right now. As, as long as he's surrounded by the crowds, the Pharisees are unwilling to arrest him. They're afraid of the crowds. They're afraid of, of what might happen if they arrest Jesus in front of them. The opportunity to arrest Jesus has to come outside of that. And we see that the political powers are, are scared of the crowds five times in the Gospel of Matthew. So among the crowds, Jesus can play off the fears of the people. Sorry, Jesus Jesus could play off the fears of the leaders. Jesus has fulfilled his role, like I said, and now he would become obedient to death. He would surrender to the will of God all the way to the cross in his death. And rather than being motivated by self-preservation, greed, or fear of death, he is motivated by a love to serve not only the Father, but the whole world. And so as Jesus surrenders to the plans and the promises of God, it literally in this case means surrendering himself to the chief priests and the leaders of the people, which is totally counter everything to what we know. Why why would Jesus surrender? He has the, the political and religious leaders right where he wants them, right? They're up against the ropes. They're getting knocked down. The crowds are on his side. He's the one that's looking victorious. He's looking like he just has to ride this out. He's going to win. Jesus, just stay with the crowds and you can usher in your kingdom. You you can be king. You you can do everything you've wanted because you're in control. When we speak of surrender, when we speak of throwing in the towel, we think of the boxer who's against the ropes, right? The Pharisees and the religious leaders. We're thinking of the people who've been knocked down and it's certain that they'll lose. We think of the army that's surrounded No support, no reinforcement, no chance for victory. What else could they do? They have to surrender. They'll be captured. They'll fail. Maybe they'll even be tortured. That's the position that we think that the religious leaders are in. 
And yet it's Jesus who's going to surrender. Because on this earth, surrender never leads to anything good, does it? When Jesus throws in the towel as the one looking like the victor, it's confusing. It's confusing if we're looking at this from a worldly standpoint, from our standpoint. It's because we don't see things the way God does. And Jesus sees a bigger victory on the horizon, beyond the cross, beyond death. He's painting a picture of what has to happen, what must take place for the plan of God to be fulfilled. There's no other way for Jesus to be made King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but to face the cross and submit himself to that death. Which leads to the second reason that these verses point to surrender and the need for it. See, in the midst of, of Judas and the chief priests, the elders of the people seeking to arrest and crucify Jesus, that the sovereign will of God is on display. Come back around to verse two with me. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Like I said, this isn't the first time that Jesus talks about his death in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the third time. uh, Sorry, he's had three times already. This is the fourth time. But this is the first one that he actually connects it with the Passover. And, And why would he connect his death with the Passover? Well, the Passover was a once a year celebration. A reminder of what God had done for his people, uh, the Hebrews, before he had brought them out of Egypt. They were in Egypt as slaves to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would not grant them their freedom. And yet, uh, God continued to to call his people out and Pharaoh rejected their, their pleas. And so a series of plagues happened. Ultimately, the tenth and final plague was the death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. But he spared those who in faith killed, ate a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts to mark their house as people who trusted in God. They were commanded to yearly commemorate this event that a lamb had died to protect them. The lamb was a sacrifice to remind them of their sin. And that's what Hebrews 10, 1 to 3 talks about. It says, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That those sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. The Passover lamb was a reminder of sin, the reminder that they needed God to cover them and to save them from their sins. There was a need for a, a sacrifice that would ultimately deal with sin. A single one, a single Passover lamb, and Jesus knew that his death was that. That he would be the one who would defeat the power of sin and overcome death once and for all. He knew that he had to be willing to submit himself to suffer and to take that place and be lifted up so that all men could look to him and be saved. Which is why when John the Baptist sees him, he exclaims, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul tells us even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, speaking of Jesus, is the Passover lamb that has been sacrificed. Which is why Hebrews 10, 9 to 10 says, Behold, I have come to do your will. And God's will is that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus knew that the surrender, his surrender to the will of God, meant that his death and his resurrection would bring us freedom. 
would bring us hope. That if any of us put our faith in him, look to him, we could be saved. That the wrath of God would be satisfied with his willing, sacrificial, sinless death. That his death would give us life, would make us holy, would cleanse us, and would allow us to be in relationship, acceptable to God once more. To everyone around him, it looked like something was going wrong. It looked like all the hard work, all the teachings, all the miracles, the healings, the blessings, the good things, everything they'd seen happening were falling apart. Which is why you can understand Peter telling Jesus, no, you you can't do this. This can't be the plan of God. This can't be the, the will of God. You can't die. But it was. And Peter would see that when he writes in 1 Peter 1.20, it was the plan from before the creation of the world. Just most didn't see it yet. In the midst of life seemingly falling down around him, Death is near, his betrayal coming, his disciples he knows will deny and desert him. They'll flee away. Jesus is sure of the will of God and he surrenders to it. The will of God was that he would sacrifice himself to redeem a people. The question for us is, do we believe, do we trust that God is in control and good even when we're following God faithfully, but life seems to be falling down around us? Do we trust that God is is good and in control even when there might not be enough money in the bank? When relationships just aren't going well? When you're trying to sell your house but you're getting no showings? When you've applied for that job or that school but you're not hearing back and you're, you're starting to get anxious? When your health is failing? When that diagnosis comes? When that illness or that injury is around. Is this really what life is supposed to be like? Is this what following God looks like? Is God good in those times? Is he in control in those times? Because I would say that in Jesus' life, that's true. God is good and God is in control even when everything was falling down around him. But will you and I surrender to God's will, to to God's control, his plan, even if it costs us, even if we don't seem like we're living victorious lives right now. What if God really is calling us to suffer? Financially, emotionally, physically, in our relationships, in this world, here and now. Will we walk in that, knowing that God has an eternal plan that's far better than any life that we could live temporarily right now? For the chief priests, the authorities, the religious people, we can look at them and say they're just responding to the the changing realities of life, right? In their eyes, they knew God's plan. It was the temple. It it was the priestly role going between God and his his people. But that, that wasn't the whole plan. It was part of the plan. Jesus knew that the will of God was his submission, his surrender to the cross. It was the only way to usher in the kingdom of God. The only way to bring peace and forgiveness, eternal life and glory. So how do we know if we're going with or against the will of God? Do we judge that by things going well in our life or things by going wrong in our life? It's actually a question that I've been asked many times by teens and young adults. How do I know what the will of God is? Well, this is what John 6.40 says. 
This is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. See, the plan of God for you and I is to surrender in the midst of everything going on around us, good or bad, uh, anything that's happening temporarily is to, is to look to God, to trust in him, to believe in him, to see him as our savior, the one who gives us eternal life, salvation, restores relationship with God. The ultimate sin of the religious leaders and the authorities is that they saw Jesus and they didn't believe. They looked on Jesus and, and thought that their, their authority, their powers, their positions the things that they could hold on to were better than him. They didn't surrender to the will of God. That was their sin. And so the question for, for you and I is, will we fear what we can lose and try to take control like the Pharisees did? Will we look to earthly things for comfort, right? The, the temporal stuff rather than the eternal like Judas? Or will we surrender to God's perfect plan? His perfect will revealed for us in the gospel, that we would trust in Jesus' death as a sacrifice that deals with our sin. That our biggest problem isn't our money, it's not our job, it's not our health, it's not our life or anything in this world, it's our standing before a holy God. Our wrestle today is the same as theirs in the chaos of life, especially when things aren't going the way we thought they would. Will we look and continue to look to Jesus? and trust him, his plans, and his promises. My hope for us today, whether we're Christians and we're believing in Jesus, or whether we don't yet believe in Jesus, that we would look very carefully at how we're living. That we would take stock of what we're trusting in. And that we would come to see that there is a better promise and a better plan than what we can form. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, it, it is an amazing thing to know that your will for us is that we would believe you. We would look to your son and, and know him and have eternal life and be raised up to eternal life on the last day. That God, we wouldn't have to face your wrath, your judgment, but we could live with you for eternity. And it's only because of what Jesus has done, because he submitted and surrendered to your will. God, would we do the same? Would we surrender to your plan and your promises to you? Would you help us to look at the ways that we have trusted in our own powers, our, our own things, the things of this world. We've trusted in our finances, our relationships. We've trusted in things that we think we can control. And God, would we take stock and understand that none of those things will actually fulfill us. None of those things will actually save us. Help us, I pray God. Help us in our wrestle with this world. Help us with our fears and our doubts. Help us to put our faith in you alone. I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.